Where do we go from here? Bit of a key question. How many people have seen The Truman Show? Classic postmodern film. Let me show you the introduction to it. Nothing is fake. Nothing is fake. It's only controlled. Do you notice what the name of the creator of the show is called? Christoph. And for good reason, if you think about it. Now, we'll come back to some of those things in a moment, but uh, I think the mo one of the most important things I want to stress today is that not all of these developments are bad. In fact, some of them are really things to rejoice in and to give thanks for. Because while we're trying to find answers to some of these challenges, we're actually, we must be aware to say that, you know, there are some things that have been pointed out that actually we've got to say, well, yeah, that's right. That is how things are. So one can't be sort of, um, sort of ostrich-like about these things and just pretend or wish it were other. Uh, and nor can we just reject the whole thing and just say, oh, it's all wrong. It's not in some really crucial ways. And I think as Christians, we want to rejoice at some of these developments because they certainly in some ways make our jobs a lot easier. Um, let me just give one or two examples. It reminds us of our own limits as human beings. We agree that our knowledge, human knowledge, and our understanding are limited. We agree with that. As Christians, we've never doubted it for a minute. We've always accepted that. We've always known that we are finite and God is infinite. We've always known that. It's been there right from the beginning of the Bible. Who ever said that we could understand everything within our own frameworks? No, the Bible is quite clear. There are many things about God that are way beyond us. Way beyond our understanding, way beyond our ability to get our heads around. Look at the book of Job and look how God responds to Job at the end of the book. And basically, there aren't any simple answers in the book of Job. Job is just given this awesome presentation of the God who is, like it or lump it. That's the way he is. Were you there at the foundations of the world? No. Do you understand everything? No. Paul is another in his letters. We see is through a glass darkly. We don't get it all. We've never said that we did. And so we need to admit our own limitations, even as Christians, even in the areas of theology and truth. And the postmoderns were right to pierce the balloon of modernity that thought that we, through science and reason and everything else, could achieve it all. Well, arrogance. But this has a knock-on effect. We need to be uh, aware that we have a need to be open ourselves. This means we must learn to learn from those who disagree with us. And I don't just mean within denominations or churches, I mean in everything. We have, must have the humility to learn things about life, about the universe, about everything, from anyone. Who said Christians have all the answers? They don't. Whether it's a Muslim, a communist, a Confucian, whoever it is, they're living in the same world as us. Surely their experience of life is not going to be so different that none of it makes sense, or none of it has insight for us. One of the reasons why I like reading um, modern novels, because people give a very different view of the world from mine. But I learn things about people and about the world, or music, or theatre, or arts, or whatever it is. I'm not afraid. You see, as a Christian, I believe that everything was made by God, and I therefore believe that I have nothing to fear from the search for truth. Nothing to fear, because all truth is God's truth. Everything that is true is made because God made it true. Whether I find that truth amongst Christians, Muslims, or atheists... There are a lot of things I've got to learn about the world, about biology, for instance, for atheists. Just because they're atheists doesn't mean that they get their biology wrong necessarily. Do you see what I mean? It might do. I might disagree and so on. But let's, let's just be real here. So I must always be willing to change my mind, which is a very uncomfortable position to be in. I must be willing to change my mind. 
I must be willing to investigate and think. I might come to the conclusion that actually, no, I, was, I think I'm right all along, or it deepens my understanding or whatever, but I'm not genuinely open to learning unless I'm genuinely open to changing my mind. Do you see? It's quite scary, especially when it's to do with important things. It's one of the things I particularly admire, actually, about John Stott and Dick Lucas over the years. I remember on Cornhill, the Cornhill training course that we had uh, with Dick Lucas and David Jackman a few years ago. If anyone knows Dick, you, you know that uh, one of his favorite books of the Bible is Second Timothy. If you invite him to preach anywhere and he hasn't, you haven't given him a text, it'll either be Psalm 2 or Second Timothy. And um, he was teaching us a course on Second Timothy for a term on Cornhill. He's probably taught through the whole letter in a sermon series probably 40 times in his life. Halfway through the term, he came bounding in, into the uh, lecture room. He'd just come off the tube, and he said, I had a revelation on bank tube station. And he said, I suddenly saw it. And he said, I suddenly saw what Second Timothy's about. And I was sitting there flipping out. Come on. What, you know, what's he been doing for the last 40 years? Basically, what had happened is that something had slotted into place. The jigsaw suddenly tightened up, and he thought, oh, that's how it all fits. And it's just something he'd not seen for ages, and suddenly it fits. And he thinks, yeah, that makes sense of what he does. Now, it's not that what he was teaching before was wrong. It's that suddenly it fitted together better. But what I admire about that was here is a man who could have just got out the notes from when he preached 2 Timothy in 1972 and just said, oh, well, that'll do, and I'll do it again. No. Do you know he throws every sermon away? After every sermon he's preached, he just throws the notes in a bin, and I've seen him do it because he wants to come to the text freshly next time and being prepared to change his mind or to learn something again. How, much, how, how often do we do that? Or do we think, oh, yeah, that's one of my passages. Yeah, I know that one. One of my favorite commentaries on the book of Exodus is written by a rabbi. He gets a lot wrong because he doesn't believe Jesus is the fulfillment of the Exodus. But I've got a lot to learn from him because his understanding of the text and what's going on is fascinating. I don't mind who I learn from. It's not that I know nothing, it's not that I can't know anything, it's just that I know that I don't know everything, and so therefore I need to be open to learn from anyone, if you could get that. Thirdly, we have our own hermeneutic of suspicion, that actually to be suspicious of people and their motives is not always a wrong thing to do, because the Bible has its own hermeneutic of suspicion. Do you know what it's called? Sin. Human sin is the underlying motive by uh, human action. We're rebels against God. So people do construct meanings, ideologies, rationalizations for themselves to enable them to live in a world without God. And the Bible calls that sin. So the postmoderns are right about this. There is a hermeneutic of suspicion to be done. And that includes even amongst Christians who do sometimes want to oppress people. And let's face it, there are some people who talk about homosexuality and are wanting to oppress people. There are people who say, burn God hates fags or whatever it is. There are Christians. I know one person in this church who would rather there weren't gay people here. Let's be real, guys. We need the hermeneutic of suspicion on our own sin and our own determination to oppress and control and manipulate and feel comfortable with ourselves. The postmoderns have got this right. Fourthly, the postmoderns are right to say, no, we are human beings. We're not just cogs in a machine. We're not sort of workers for the collective or, you know, um, worker ants for the company profits. We have a spiritual side, a personality that is incredibly complex and it's probably even more complex than body, mind and spirit. It's probably more to it even than that. That's probably to reduce it too much, isn't it? We're complex beings. On the other hand, we recognize that actually human autonomy and individualism are very dangerous and can lead to all kinds of disaster. So there's a lot going on that, that postmodernism is exposing that we've, well, we've been saying it all along. Slightly frustrating when others sort of jump on the bandwagon, but that's fine. 
Now, of course, they expose one or two other things about us as well that we would want to disagree with and say, hang on a minute, chum, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Now, they're just one or two examples. So let's be honest. Many Christians actually have made many of the mistakes of the modernity in the name of the gospel. So we need to work out where we've gone wrong, repent of that, and think about how we can live a different life that actually responds to the needs and... uh, the problems of our culture. Now, of course, this is a generalization, and there'll be all kinds of variations. Uh, So that's precisely the point of postmodernism, all kinds of different things going on that we can't sort of summarize, but this will hopefully give a bit of a point. Oh, no, I I was going to show you some pictures first. Here we are. Edward Hopper. Uh, Who went to the Hopper exhibition at the Tate Modern? Absolutely awesome. What Hopper, I think, is doing is exposing the desperate lack of humanity in a modern world. There are loads of pictures like this. Uh, the, the top one is the, the famous one, the Nighthawks, and that was in the ex- exhibition. We saw it, and it's huge. It's really big. It dominates a whole wall. It's very long and quite sort of magnificent. But uh, all his paintings, there's a sort of acute loneliness. You have lots of people staring out of windows. You have lots of people sitting in silence. Look at these guys. They're all sunbathing, but each one is completely unaware of the others, isolated, lost, in a crowd. And even these people, they're having a drink in this late night sort of bar, but they're not talking. This guy's not talking, that guy's not talking, the couple aren't talking. And then in the booklet, I put another one about, uh, with some people sitting on a train. They're not talking, they're just sitting there. It's a bit like the tube in the mornings, isn't it? My family has a flat in the Barbican, and I lived in it for a while, uh, when I was doing Cornhill, in fact. So I lived in this flat with a, a friend, uh, we shared it for a year. I never saw one neighbour on one side, didn't even know what he looked like. And the other neighbour on the other side, I met once in the lift in the whole year. And yet, there are all these little sort of rabbit hutches with people living little lives completely independently of each other. Hopper, amongst many others, is saying, no, there's a despair, there's a loneliness. Hopper doesn't necessarily have any answers. He's just saying how it is, isn't he? That's sort of backtracking a little bit. But um, I want to play you a song now, and I want you to talk about it. Uh, we'll, We'll feedback about it afterwards. It's um, for those who heard the sort of embryo of this talk last year. I played it then. Uh, This is by Faithless. We're going to go to a nightclub together. Uh, So picture yourself at about three in the morning. And um, it's called God as a DJ. Uh, That's on my list uh, to suggest to Noel for Christmas praise. Why don't you just sort of chat with one or two people sitting near you and try and work out what is going on, what is... Uh, in that song that you can relate to. I'm not talking about the musical style or anything else like that. I'm thinking about the sentiments behind it. What do you think he's got right? What has he got wrong? Just what's going on? This got to number six in the 1998 charts. Uh, Well, I quite like it, actually. I could listen to that for a long time. Some of you probably couldn't bear it. But anyway, there we are. Just chat amongst yourselves, and then we'll feed back in a moment. What's going on? Any thoughts? Yeah. Okay. And more certainly, kind of the euphoria of music and everything is when people come into the game. Absolutely, and that's particularly here. Um, it's in the world I've become, containing the hum between voice and drum, it's in change. And basically, people get together, and yeah, the euphoria, ecstasy, in more ways than one, of the nightclub has its sort of healing power, doesn't it? Yep, anything else? This is God as a DJ. The DJ very much controls the atmosphere. Right. Right, so basically, 
He's got a concept of God. I mean, basically what he's doing, he's using Christian language, isn't he? Church language. But he's saying, no, this doesn't happen in church anymore. This happens in a nightclub. And in the church, you have God sort of manipulating, pulling the strings, playing the discs, as it were, um, or Noel Tradinic, depending on which church you're in. But in a nightclub, well, the DJ is the controller. He controls his everything. And in fact, both these two DJs, um, Sister Bliss, this one, she's one of the best female DJs around, apparently. I'm not a sort of uh, clubber myself, but I like the music. Basically, it is an art, and it's incredibly powerful because you are manipulating, not necessarily in a negative way. I mean, it's, you know, you're providing a service. That's what people want. That's why they go. Uh, and basically, they get subsumed in the sort of dancing, the music, the sound, the, everything else. Do you see what I mean? So, yeah. So the, the language even of God is being applied. Yeah. The modern person, God has been reduced to, to being a DJ and, and the, the club that he's playing in is literally the church. Absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And basically, um, I don't have church anywhere else. You know, he repeats it and it's making the emphasis, this is my church. This is, this is where I heal my hurts. Now, you might go to some Botos in the mire or whatever it is. That's your church, but this is mine. And this is where I heal my hurts. But you see, it's fine though. It's okay because where I heal my hurts, actually, I'm getting the same things out of it. It works. So um, watching young lives shape in minor keys, solutions and remedies, enemies becoming friends when bitterness ends. That's what's supposed to go on in church. Isn't that why we say the peace at communion? Because we're meant to be reconciled to one another. I heard the story of a church in Africa where the pastor got to, it was quite a divided church, the pastor gets to the peace and it just suddenly occurs to him that actually, no, the church was not at peace. And he said, right, we're going outside, we're going to sort this out. I'm not carrying on the service until we've sorted it out. Maybe we should do that sometimes. But the difference here is that these people are reconciled to each other without any eternal message. Oh, sure. Absolutely, but the, uh, the, the imagery is what I'm getting at, that it, the whole thing is contracted. And what is even more tragic than that is con- it's more contracted than the modernist worldview because actually that word there is the most important of them all because tonight God is my DJ. Tomorrow morning I'm going to wake up probably with a headache, it'll be raining, I perhaps have to go to work or perhaps I don't have work and I don't have the DJ there to spin the discs and get me on a high. That's so I think that message is quite sinister. I think it's very, very bleak. Sorry, Mary, are you going to say? There's a real escapism there. Yeah. Right. You don't come in here to escape. You come in to refresh ourselves. Yeah. That's right. That's very difficult. Yeah. But I think we make a mistake if we assume all people, all young people, go to clubs, go for you know, crack and sure, 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 sure. They go to unwind. Yeah. I mean, basically, yeah, it is a sort of form of leisure these days, and, and at one level, that's that's fine. Um, but I think, just in terms, of, rather than analysing the whole of club culture, in terms of what this song is saying. I mean, I completely agree with Clive there, but I think um, he is making a, a theological point about reality and about his life, isn't he? From their perspective, there is no difference between his church. Exactly, and I think the crucial thing is that it works for you, it works for me. Or is yeah. he saying that what I see as church is failed? That could be there as well, yep. No, not obviously reality. Yeah, yep, there's one there and then one there. It's, it's saying it works, 
because there's a lot of positive words, mm. even if there's no ideology behind right. it. Yeah. And therefore, I'm sure the church, you know, that works quite well on Sunday. Yeah. Absolutely. And basically, you see that a classic postmodern was dismiss the very possibility of us having an ideology behind it. We would say the gospel should and does hopefully shape the church. But they would say that there's no gospel, so you meet together, and what you do, if that works for you, that's great. Yep. 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 I mean, there is a reality, isn't it? I do hurt. It's facing up to something in life there. I have my hurts, and I do have my enemies. I have my problems, but this is where I go to solve them because, yeah, the church, that, that's no good. I think last one, and then we must move. Interesting to, to how we're analysing this and we're analysing from a very modernist mindset, which kind of worked out. What I'm saying, yeah. um, and if we're post-modernists, we'd be sitting here saying, well, and we'll come back to that because I think I'm neither a modernist nor a postmodernist. I hope. I think that there is a way through to understanding texts. So I wouldn't even be beginning to do this day if I didn't think that was the case. But that's a very helpful point, and we'll come back to that. Okay. I want you to do a bit more in huddles in a minute. How do people respond to us? And again, I've got this from, mainly from Dave Tomlinson. I've adapted them a little bit, uh, but I think they're helpful. He's just um, outlined a number of characteristics of people in the society today who sort of fall into a sort of postmodern mindset. And when we're trying to tell the old, old story, I want you just to think about it. It may be from experience or it may be just sort of theoretical as a result of what we talked about. How do people respond because of these characteristics? So when we're trying to present Christ and Christianity... I want you to see if you can fill in the boxes, all right? Let me just run through them, just to sort of summarize what we've got to. The first one, meta-narratives are abandoned as unattainable and, in fact, dangerous, okay? That's uh, Lyotard simplifying to the extreme. I believe uh, it's incredulity towards meta-narratives. In other words, you can't have them. In fact, uh, to take it further, they would say meta-narratives are unethical. That's quite a postmodern word to use. They like using that. They say a meta-narrative is unethical because it oppresses people. Then institutions, hierarchies, centralized bureaucracies, and male-dominated organizations are very profoundly distrusted. They're all lumped together. Human beings belong to the environment and to the natural world, rather than superior to or apart from it, hence a real concern for global warming and exploitation of limited resources. The green movement has gathered many, many more people than just the straight sort of conservationist ecologists. It grows out of largely uh, actually a worldview thing and a perception of what modernity has done to the planet. People are hungry for spirituality but dismissive of systemized religion. Networks and local grassroots activities take precedence over large-scale structures and we live in the screen or image age, not a book or word age, and image and reality are so deeply intertwined that it's hard to tell the difference at times vis-a-vis -vis the Truman Show or even The Matrix, if you've seen The Matrix, classic postmodern film. Uh, just chat through those. You won't get through them all, but I just want you just to be thinking, because actually this, we're meant to be practical here. It's not just lots of theory. We're thinking, what happens when we get out there and start talking about these things, okay? Do that for a few minutes, would you? Okay. Hopefully it's got a few brain cells engaged. It sounds impressive for an after-lunch meeting, even if the conversations weren't that impressive.
Let's just sort of feedback. Let me just go through, we'll go through quite quickly, but let's just go through each one and just pool ideas on the sort of consequences of some of these things. Uh, this is before we can begin to answer and deal with some of them. I don't think they're all sort of mountains that are too high to climb. I think there are things we can say as we will go on to, but this is just to sort of go to the stage of actually seeing what happens when we try to make our claims. So the big one is the first one. That's the most obvious. Meta-narratives are abandoned as unattainable and, in fact, dangerous. So what happens when we start telling people about Jesus? On one hand, you consider archaic and irrelevant. Yep, archaic, irrelevant. Imperialist, yep. Impossible, yep. Narrow-minded, yep. Definitely all these things. Absolutely. And you don't need to know very much about Christian history to see actually how dangerous sometimes Christians have been. So we've got a problem, haven't we? Because we have a meta-narrative. Uh, we have a gospel, a message, a big story. So we've got an immediate problem. Okay, next. Institutions, hierarchy, centralized, male-dominated organizations, all the rest. Yep. Can I just say, David Thomas is not bigger, church or London. I'm very interested in this paradox. I was told last week about the church order, but I was asking why we don't do outreach, and they said, we don't like telling people how to live their lives. And I said, that's not the same as sharing the gospel with them. And I said, I told them I've got a problem, I've got to move to another church. I used to make 20 years ago. The only problem is with this kind of close model is they go too far the other way. Yeah. Like you just said, oh, we can't tell people yeah. what to do. It's very weird. Come back and back to home Well, you'd be most welcome. <laughs> but uh, we'll definitely come back to that because that fits in very nicely with what I want to say um, towards the end. So thank you. Yep. Yeah, we share that sympathy. Well, we do. Um, but but you know, whether we like it or not, we're part of one. We are part of the church. Huge suspicion. I and mean, basically, sting song, I don't believe, I, you know, I don't have faith in the holy church. But most people out there don't make nice distinctions between Protestantism, Catholicism, Catholicism charismatic, whatever. It's the church. Okay. Very male-dominated, absolutely, and that is a problem. Divided. So, uh, uh, you know, hypocritical, actually. Um, but then, you know, a postmodern would say, well, any institution of more than a handful of people is going to be divided because you can't have a big story. Okay, next, the environment, natural world. Now, this is interesting. As Christians, we should be at the forefront of environmental action, not at the back. But what has gone wrong is one of the things is... I think a mishandling of what God means when he says subdue the earth in Genesis 2. We've taken that to mean exploit rather than be stewards with disastrous consequences. And a lot of the exploitation of modernity has grown out of a theistic Judeo-Christian worldview in the pre-modern era. The world is there for us. We are the center of it. And we exploit and get out of it what we can. Hang the future. Hang the planet. So actually, we've got a tension here, and as Christians, there is some repentance to be done corporately, if you can talk like that, but certainly an acknowledgement of our complicity in the past as the church, but a recognition that actually, no, we should be looking after the creation more than anybody else, because we believe that God made it, and it's beautiful and good, and we're the ones who bust it. Hungry for spirituality, but not systematic religion. And people go to a field, and they feel that they've prayed. Don certainly, denominations are a problem, and you are seeing this, particularly, for instance, um, with UCCF and student circles. When a student goes to a new town, they go to a church not because of its denomination, but because of its ethos and what it's doing and what it's teaching. 
But, you know, out there, basically, we've got a problem again because we do have an articulated faith with doctrines or dogma. So we do have a problem with that. But we've got to find a way to... You see, we can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater because uh, uh, you know, then we'd have to stop being Christians in the traditional understanding of that word. But maybe that's okay. Are people hungry for spirituality? That's a very good question. Canary Wharf is probably not the best place because that is the sort of um, one of the sort of European centres of capitalism and modernity in some ways. Well, there is a church there, but if you went to Glastonbury or Camden Market. I think so, but I think that the structures of it, and basically the, the structures will break at some point. But there are people who have immunized themselves much more to that need, I think, in that world. Not exclusively and not universally and not forever. It, it'll break through. But I think in terms of meeting someone who's just, you know, like Neil on the young ones, you know, yeah, man, just taking it all in. Yeah, you know what I mean? Networks, local grassroots. You, you know the sort of covered bit where they've got all these stalls and things? It's a sort of, it's quite new agey. There's lots of sort of weird stuff going on. I don't get too hung up about it, especially if you live in Camden. Uh, grassroots, no, local networks, that sort of thing. Community. This is great. We've always believed in a universal and a local church. We're local, but we're part of something bigger. And that actually provides a massive opportunity because we meet people where they're at, but we can invite them into a larger world that they don't think exists which is, if you like, the global church at its best. A screen image, not a, a screen era, word, image era, not a word-centered era. And I think a case in point is um, Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, which I have not seen and I don't want to see. I'm not saying that you shouldn't, but far from it. But it's a very powerful and emotive thing. My problem with it is not the fact as such of making a film about Jesus, although one could go into debates about that, but my problem is that it is not reticent where the Bible is reticent. So it goes into graphic detail of the physical agony of the crucifixion where the Bible says zippo about it. And it's actually the spiritual agony of the cross that is what the Bible is concerned with primarily. You know, Mark's Gospel just says, and they crucified him. But yes, uh, that's a bit of a red herring, sorry about that. We have a massive problem because we've got a Bible. In and of itself, that is a problem which we need to work out and deal with. Now, there are all kinds of issues here. None of these things are necessarily right or appropriate. They're just the reality. How we respond to them, there's going to be a lot of argument, and I don't have all the answers. I'm just laying it as how it is. We've just got to work out how to respond in a faithful as well as relevant way, don't we? Now, we'll come up with all kinds of different answers, probably quite a lot to do with our own temperaments and what we like doing just trying to decide what sort of music to have in a church. That'll, you'll find out what sort of temperaments and inclinations you have then. Okay. How we're heard, I'm just going to buzz through this. We think that we are loving people, even when we're referring to a Christian lifestyle and holiness. We think that this is the best way to live, and we think that it is an act of love to tell somebody else. We come across as hateful. The exact polar opposite of what we think we are, we're seen to be. Um, whether it's gay people or religious minorities or whoever it is, we're seen to just be on a power trip, not accepting people who are different. We don't like that sort. It's tragic, isn't it? The one thing that you know, the early church was renowned for, see how these Christians love one another. 
See how these Christians hate people. That's what we're seen as, folks. You might not like it. I don't like it, but it's true. Uh, We claim to be tolerant and indiscriminate. After all, Jesus welcomes everybody, and we say at our communion service, you know, we welcome all those who know and love the Lord Jesus. We welcome you. But there is a qualification there. You've got to know and love the Lord Jesus to come to the table. And actually, we're seen to be intolerant and profoundly cliquey of those whose lifestyles we don't tolerate. No, I'm not saying this is right or wrong. I'm just saying this is how it is. Thirdly, we think that it's great being forgiven and we want others to be forgiven as well. That's why we tell people the gospel. We are seen to be superior and condemning. Now, that is nothing new. People have thought that of Christians since kingdom come. But it's particularly the case now. So what do we do? Well, I've got some pointers, some things I think will help. I think someone earlier mentioned the fact that we have a huge opportunity here. I think that it is no harder to speak into a postmodern world than into a modern world. I think both present different challenges. We're just used to the modernist ones, so we know how to handle those a bit better. We're not so used to the new ones. Now, as I say, there are some people who still live as modernists. Uh, you know Francis Ween, the journalist who wrote that book, uh, How Mumbo Jumbo Took Over the World, or whatever it was, you come across that? Basically, he is a modernist ranting at postmodernism longing for a return to rationalism so that we can think our way through. You know, there are people who are clinging on to the old order. I think that we've just got to adjust our thinking and just be aware of where people are at. And remember that in the end, no amount of arguments, no amount of listening, no amount of thinking will actually change people. It is the gospel that is the power for salvation, first to last, first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. So that is where our confidence ultimately lies, But there are some things that uh, we can make that work easier without actually compromising ourselves. Now, the danger is always that we'll become postmoderns. But actually, there's nothing new there. The danger is that most Christians living in the last 200 years were moderns. So the first point under this is I think, despite some things, I think people are open to religious experience. And perhaps they have fewer preconceived ideas of what is going on. Now, many of you, I hope, will have heard of Douglas Copeland a Canadian, who is a classic Generation Xer. He was born in 1961, and uh, he is the author of the book Generation X, there at the top, and a number of others. I'm a huge fan of his. I think he's phenomenal and remarkably honest and very penetrating in his insights. There are one or two books that I wouldn't necessarily recommend because they're not as good as the others, but I've put some on the, the reading list at the end of the booklet so you can look at later. I've got an amazing interview at home, which is from Third Way magazine about eight or nine years ago now. And um, he just, it's a fascinating, it's a brilliant interview. It's exactly how those sort of Third Way interviews should work. It's, it's just excellent. In it, he describes how he has only ever been to church once in his life, and that was for a wedding. He was brought up on an American Air Force base in Germany in the 60s, or Canadian Air Force, and then has lived in Vancouver since, I think. But he's got a lot of interesting insights about Christianity, even though he's only been to church once for a wedding. I mean, you're not going to get a pretty good impression, are you, from that? But he still understands a lot. And at the end of the interview, he says, wow, these are some of the best questions I've ever had. I hope I've been answering them. There were some very gentle but penetrating questions about his worldview. And he was just thrilled to be talking about it. And that really comes across in the interview. He's really clearly enjoying the interview. You know, you read some of those third-way interviews with sort of Jeremy Paxman or, some, or John Humphreys, and they just, you know, pesky Christians. Whereas, no, this is much more positive. And people are open, and they're opening to asking questions. And I think that is a really key thing. We should start asking people questions. 
rather than ramming down answers straight away. Ask questions. In his amazing book called Life After God, which is a book that brought tears to my eyes, it's a profoundly honest book. I mean, his writing is very funny. But on the very last page, he says these tragic words, and they've been used by preachers ever since because they're great. But you've got to read the whole book because it's a great book. This is what he says. Now, here is my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart. I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you are in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God, that I am sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem capable of giving, to help me to be kind as I seem no longer capable of kindness, to help me to love as I seem beyond being able to love. It's chilling, isn't it? but fantastically honest. I'm going to play you a song now that will shock you. It's got some rude words in it. Please do not get worried about that. To do so is completely to miss the point. Understand the emotion behind the rude words, okay? Bono has come out of a Christian background, is still really trying to understand that. And many of his songs and those of you two generally, are really trying to get their heads around how they can hold on to some of their old beliefs and confidences in this new age. And actually, if there's a band that understands postmodernism more than any, it's you two. And some of their more recent albums are really just... Almost every song in different ways is really just trying to work out how we hold on to things in the modern world. So it's very profound and important stuff. And so there's a sort of Christian framework here, but he's trying to grapple, he's trying to, to fit with reality of life what he used to believe, and perhaps still does sort of believe. And this is certainly behind a lot of his sort of activism, you know, on the world stage, and, you know, sort of the G7 summits, G8 summits, and all that sort of stuff. It's driven out of a Christian worldview originally. Um, so I think Bono is, a, in many ways, a fascinating guy and a very sort of useful person to try and uh, understand. I think he's a very admirable guy as well. We can come back to that in questions. We must uh, motor. The next point is that we probably live more in a pre-Christian world than a post-Christian world. The problem is most people out there think this is post-Christian. They think that Christianity has been tried and found wanting and we've moved on. It hasn't worked. The churches are dying. People are moving on. They're particularly going east for their religious e- expansion and experience. So they think the church is, is, is no go anymore. The reality is that actually we are more in a pre-Christian world where people are completely ignorant of the gospel and ignorant of what Christianity is all about. So that you can find, you know, it's not uncommon for a survey of university students in this country to find that uh, 60% do not know that there are four gospels in the New Testament. Whereas 30 years ago, that would have just been general knowledge. If you ever watch University Challenge and see whenever they get Bible questions, they're really easy. You can all do them, and none of them can. It's amazing. They're highly educated about sort of you know, Einstein and amoebas and things, but forget the Bible. So actually, we need to understand ourselves in a cross-cultural situation, even if you've been in Britain all your life and you've never gone anywhere else. The culture has moved on from you if you're a Christian. It's left you behind. Whether you like it or not, you need to catch up. You need to catch up. In exactly the same way that when we moved to Uganda, we had a lot of work to do to try and understand the culture we were living in. And in some ways, by the end of four years there, I felt I understood it less than I did at the beginning. There's a lot that perplexed me and I didn't understand. But but actually, that's going to be the the same, particularly of 
postmodernism because everything's happening so fast. You know, the average lifespan of a laptop computer is 18 months, and then it'll be obsolete. You upgrade. Well, people are upgrading their worldviews all the time. They're getting, you know, 3.2 beta worldviews instead of uh, 2.9 worldviews. Finally, don't be on the defensive all the time. Don't take this lying down. This was one of Francis Schaeffer's great gifts to the church. He would probe carefully, patiently, sensitively to ask questions to help people to see the limits of what they were thinking. And he is never more relevant than now. He hasn't gone out of fashion. Read him. And he called it worldview criticism. This is what Gene Veith said about Schaefer. He said that actually it was a very postmodern approach, this worldview criticism. He said, Schaefer's way of showing how secular statements of truth actually mask complex religious assumptions shows that Schaefer did not deconstruct texts. He deconstructed sinners. famous example was um, once when he had an existentialist student staying at Brie in Switzerland. And they would have all kinds of people in and out all the time staying with them. And for some reason, this guy stayed quite a while. He wasn't a Christian at all. Quite a nihilist, in other words. And uh, part of the culture, if you've ever been to any of the libraries, I spent quite a bit of time at the English library. And part of the culture is that every mealtime you get together around the table, have a meal, and you'll discuss something. So it's very exciting. But there was one time where Francis Schaeffer was talking to this guy and just wasn't getting anywhere. It just seemed that this guy was completely blocked. So he boiled a kettle got the others around the table to pin this guy on the floor, held the kettle over his face and said, what in your worldview do you have to stop me pouring this over your head? And the guy went, don't! But why not? And there was nothing he could say, to which Schaefer said, I have everything in my worldview to mean that I would never, ever do that because I believe in a God of justice who judges, I believe in right and wrong, and I believe in the value of your life. And that was the beginning of his conversion. Worldview criticism analyze, push the boundaries, say, no, actually, is it really like that? I'm going to play you a song that I think is very disturbing indeed. But this one is, it's in the back, uh, The Divine Comedy. is an Irish band. A lot of the music is written by a guy who has a PhD in music. Uh, Neil Handlon, that guy, is the singer. They, there are a lot of musicians who've been classically trained in this band, so they're doing the classic postmodern thing of taking a bit from here, there, and everywhere and mixing it up into something new. So it's fascinating musically, and I think in many ways this exposes brilliantly the agony of the postmodern that we can begin to say, hang on, but it isn't really, it doesn't have to be like that. We've got to ask questions, and I think the first question to ask is, how on earth can you live like this? If you take away meta-narratives, there are actually only four possible ways to live. This is taken from a book by David Harvey called The Condition of Postmodernity. The first is to accept the meaninglessness of life. So just delve into hedonism, basically the nightclub. You know, it is meaningless, so let's just enjoy it. It's sort of, you know, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. There's a bit of a precedent for that. Secondly is deny complexity. In other words, try and just cut yourself off from the complexities of the real world and just take refuge in simplistic slogans and sound bites. I think we're seeing that in politics all the time because it's too complicated. So they're actually meaningless, many of these soundbites, but they sound good, and we think, yeah, I believe in that, so I'm going to join in. Thirdly, you settle for limited action. You just say, okay, well, look, I'm not going to be able to make a big difference, but I can make a bit of a difference with the people around me. Nothing is universal, so just concentrate on your own little world. If you can't change the world, well, at least change your neighborhood. Fourthly, construct your own language and meta-narrative. Ultimately, assert your power... Let's be completely frank about it. 
assert your power and your meta-narrative on the rest of the world and um, just play the game. In a sense, that's precisely what Hitler did. And he was strongly influenced by Nietzsche, and Nietzsche is a huge influence on postmodern thinkers. I haven't had a you know, moment even to talk about Nietzsche. But the whole idea of the superman, the strong man overcoming the weak, is precisely this idea. It's saying, well, yeah, so what if it's a power game? I'm just going to take power. Just embrace it. Which is actually the answer of the terrorist and the totalitarian. Let me show you another clip from uh, Reality Bites. Uh, resonate from that, I think. I don't know who I am anymore. Uh, the situations, the documentary, we saw her filming at the very beginning. She's taken to a TV station, and they've completely mangled it and twisted it and turned it into something that wasn't her intention at all. And the awful thing is about her life and her friend's life, and the TV company have completely changed it, which is quite a parable for the times. And uh, she's just coming to terms with that and, and just saying, you know, well, I wanted to make a difference. It's not going to change world hunger, but it is going to make a difference. And this is how most people are living with this. But uh, there are some limitations with postmodernism that I think we can expose, and I've outlined them at the top of page 12. The problem with a pick-and-mix culture, and I think this is something we can help people to see, is to say, look, you're just avoiding the difficult things. No one's going to pick and mix the nasty things. You know, when you have pick and mix sweets, you choose the ones you like. Pick and mix avoids the brutalities of life. It's escapism. You can't just live a life where everything is laid back and playful because actually there are things, there are some things that matter in life, usually to do with people in their lives. Is nothing serious? Thirdly, if you just have a sort of logic and reason abandoned and everything just becomes a sort of pool of babble and, and stuff, then someone has put it that pools of ignorance replace founts of knowledge. It's interesting that a postmodernist will still get upset if you give their books a bad review. Or if you say, uh, Michel Foucault means this, they will write back and say, no, that's not what I meant, which completely subverts what they're saying because... They did mean something, and they expected that to be communicated. A friend of mine um, shared a room set at Cambridge with a guy who was a classic postmodernist, and they were good friends. He was from a Jewish background, but, you know, as pomo as they come. Robin was just going out to do some shopping for his friend. He said, look, I'm going to Tesco's. Do you need anything? And his mate said, yeah, could you get me a beer and some crisps? Robin goes shopping, comes back with boot polish and a newspaper. And the guy says, no... I asked for beer and Chris, why did you get this? And Robin says, I chose to interpret you as meaning this. You can't live like that. Another classic example, I've never been able to work out his name, but there was a semiologist. Semiology is the study of signs. And basically, it's very hip at the moment because people understand words as signs of things, but they don't mean anything in themselves. And basically, we all interpret signs as we wish. Classically postmodern, the reader is the author. He was killed by driving through a red traffic light. Just think about that. You can't live like that. We, yes, red doesn't automatically mean stop. It doesn't always mean stop, but we have a shared understanding that it does mean stop, and if you don't stop, you die. Even a postmodernist stops at traffic lights. Finally, they're confined to the present, and therefore they distrust history and any hope of progress. So we live in the present, we're focused on the present, but we still have a nostalgia for the past. I think that explains the success of past times, the, um, that sort of tacky shop, you know, where you can suddenly buy sort of Victorian lace or a Tudor banjo or whatever it is. 
you know, history is, is to be used. It's, history is now a consumer article as well. So you buy your bit of history from past times, but of course it's completely fake, isn't it? Because it was made last year in Taiwan. This is the most important thing I want to say all day, is the next thing. And that is that we do know something. We don't abandon all knowledge. We don't know everything. We know that our knowledge is limited and flawed. But this doesn't automatically mean I know nothing or that I cannot communicate anything. Epistemology, therefore, has embraced this idea called critical realism. And I've put on there Tom Wright, uh, who I've mentioned before, his definition of this, this is very helpful, is quite wordy, so I've put it on so that you can take it away and work out what not he's talking about. I propose a form of critical realism. This is a way of describing the process of knowing that acknowledges the reality of the things known. So in other words, there are things out there as something other than the knower. In other words, it's not just in my mind. It's not just a figment of my imagination. Yes, you do exist. You're not just in my head. So realism while fully acknowledging that the only access we have to this reality lies along the spiraling path of appropriate dialogue and conversation between the knower and the thing known. In other words, critical. So I'm constantly in dialogue, I'm asking questions, trying to work out what is true. And the more people who are involved in that, the better. So it's not just me, the single knower in my study, on my own knowing. I need others to help me because I have blind spots. So there are things that you can know, but I'm limited. Don Carson uses an illustration. He's a mathematician, Don Carson. That's his background. That's why he likes these things. He uses the illustration first popularized by a thinker called Karl Popper, who used the asymptotic curve as an illustration for this. An asymptote is a line that continually approaches a given curve but does not meet it at a finite distance. In other words, the blue line is coming down and getting closer and closer to this axis, but it never touches it. It touches it in infinity. All right. Now, what Carson says is that actually this is quite a helpful model for how we interpret text. It's not that we have the ultimate answer of a text or what it means, but that we can improve and get closer and closer, part of the process of critical realism. And he uses the example of John 3.16, God so loved the world, dot, dot, dot. Now, Don Carson says, you have a, a chap in Sunday school called Fred who's age six. And you ask him, does God love you, Fred? And he says, yes, because the Bible tells me I'm in the world and God made the world. God so loved the world. Perfectly true. Then Fred grows up a bit and he's now 12 and you ask Fred, does God love you? Yes, because God loves me so much that he was prepared to send Jesus to die on the cross for me. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave up his only son. Was Fred wrong when he was six? No. But has Fred grasped more of it at 12? Yes. Then Fred, at age 21, and he's thinking about going to seminary, and he's done some theology, and he's thinking about things, and you ask Fred, does God love you, Fred? He says, yes, because I'm in the world, which is the cosmos in Greek, and cosmos, when it comes up in John's Gospel, has very negative connotations. It's not about the created order as such. It's about a world in rebellion against God. And that is all the more astonishing, because when God says that he loves the world, it means that he loves rebels enough to send Jesus to die on the cross. Did Fred, when he was 12, understand all that? No. Did he understand the gospel? Yes. Did he understand that text? Yes. Does Fred, when he's 21, have a better grasp of it? Yes. Do you see? We think that Fred is getting closer to what's going on in the text. Critical realism, do you see? And um, what it also means is that there is such a thing as a misreading. So if you ask Fred, does God love you? And he says, no, he hates me. 
That is certainly a misreading of John 3.16, isn't it? So you see, there are some things that you can rule out. Or um, Umberto Eco, if anyone come across his books, The Name of the Rose, Foucault's Pendulum, he's a, a great hero as well. He talks about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he says it would be a misreading of the parable of the Good Samaritan if someone legitimized pedophilia and incestual rape from that parable. That would be a misreading of that text. Do you see? There is such a thing as a misreading. Not all readings are valid. And so we use this process of critical realism to gain closer to the text. Not that we'll always get there or ever get there in this life. It's only in infinity that the line touches the x-axis. We see as through a glass darkly, but one day we will see as we are seen. And this is why Bible study is so important and why talking to one another is so important and why as a staff team every Thursday morning before we have to preach on Sunday here, we have a study together as a staff where you have to present your outline to the rest of the staff and say, this is what I'm thinking of doing. And everyone bats it around. And that is fantastic. Is truth always a power game? The postmoderns say it always is. We have an answer to that. It has often been a power game. Christians themselves have often played the game. But because of our Christian meta-narrative, we are forced into the realization that we are not the center of the universe and that actually becoming a Christian is a humiliation. It's humiliating to become a Christian because you have to swallow your pride and say, no, I'm not the center. God, I've sinned against you. And not only that, and this is our claim, I know, but our claim is that the revelation comes from outside. It's not human-invented stories, as Peter says in Second Peter. We do not follow cleverly invented stories but a word that came from outside. So God is our fixed point. He is our secure rock, and we are not. So I might be a bit wobbly. I might not know everything, but God does. But this is the crucial thing. Analyze the meta-narrative and see what God does with his power. That's what he does with his power. God in Christ gave up the privileges and the rights of divinity and died as a victim, a weak, oppressed, unjustly treated criminal on a cross. That is the total opposite of what the world would expect a king to do. The total opposite. Human kings, powers, governments, philosophers try to control and manipulate people for their own ends. What does God do? He dies. This God came down and died as our slave. That is an incredible subversion of power, isn't it? This is something that Michel Foucault does not understand. He's not got this. This is no power game. This is an act of self-sacrificial love. A message of love for a suffering world lies at our very heart, and that it should. This is our story. This is our song. Let us tell it out. Now, sadly, the church has not always grasped this. Traditionally, one could argue that a huge amount went very wrong when it became the Roman Empire's official religion. And you just have to look at the medieval crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, Protestantism in Northern Ireland, the Church of England's role in politics, Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa, you name it. The track record of any denomination and church grouping down history is not particularly great, especially when it gets close to political power. I think 1 and 2 Corinthians are the letters for our times. They concern a church in a sex-mad, image-obsessed, power-hungry society, and no wonder they found the cross difficult in Corinth. But still, there was a church there. I take great confidence in that. There was a church in Corinth. I have to keep reminding myself of that when I walk through London sometimes. There was a church in Corinth. However flawed and messed up it was, let us delight and marvel at our meta-narrative of love and weakness. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. 
Following on from this, what is tolerance? Well, just a small point, but I think as Clive was saying, people have completely misunderstood what tolerance is. Today, it means we mustn't assert our views in case they offend. But the irony is that actually this leads to the victory of the minority, so that the minority oppresses the majority. That's the irony of this. Now, that's no better than the majority oppressing the minority, I grant you. But it still comes to the same thing. Hence, not celebrating Christmas in a borough with 4% Muslims for fear of offending them. But you can celebrate Eid all you like. To completely miss the point, true tolerance is about saying, this is my view and I completely accept your right to hold a different one. In fact, I'll defend your right to the hilt to say something different from me. But we'll both believe our beliefs, we'll talk about them, we'll dialogue, but we will agree to disagree. I will then tolerate you even if you disagree with me and I disagree with you. So I accept the person who thinks differently even if I don't accept their views. I might think their views are unacceptable, but I still accept the person. But a postmodernist goes further and in the name of tolerance says, I will not accept you or your right to believe what you believe because your views are unacceptable and therefore you are unacceptable. Exactly. Finally, and I'm rocketing now, learn to live in the real world. Now, why do I say this? Well, because we Christians have a habit of thinking that things are lovely and truly blessed and becoming the sorts of Christians who, you know, can sort everything out and understand everything in a breeze. Well, get real, folks. We live in a complicated world and we don't understand everything. And I don't understand everything about my life, let alone yours. Accept reality and accept the difficulties. A postmodern hates nothing more than a hypocrite and will be only too quick to expose it, and rightly so. We should model ourselves on the Lord Jesus, who was the most integrated, complete, generous, clear, loving, stable, consistent, generous, trustworthy with power, never trying to manipulate people who ever lived, if not the one. So what do we do? Will we relate to reach... We need community. We need to live together because that is what people are crying out for. They're lonely. And I've got another scene from Reality Bites that I can't show you because of time where basically that's exactly what they're saying. One of the, the friends thinks she's HIV positive and she's sitting talking to Winona Ryder in a cafe and it's one of the most powerful scenes in the film because she, her lip starts quivering and she suddenly admits that she feels terribly alone. Leslie Newbegin, the missionary writer, wrote this, the only possible hermeneutic of the gospel today is a congregation that believes it. We've got to live it and believe it together. I think this is why Alpha and why Christianity Explored work so well, because they do generate community in a sort of artificial way, sure, and round a table and stuff and just once a week, sure, but it's a beginning. And one of the real joys this year is that one fellowship group has been started this month that grew out of Christianity Explored this time last year, then did DE, Discipleship Explored together, then they did DE2 last term, and now they're becoming a fellowship group and only two people have dropped out. Hallelujah. I think this is at work. We have a story. It's not quite as lurid as the medieval one. It's not quite as rigid as the medieval one. There are a lot of things that the moderns and postmoderns react to against the medieval worldview that they need to react to. I think most of us would be pretty grateful we don't live in the medieval era, not least because of dentists. But um, the elements are there, and this is our story. You see, I am not imprisoned in the present. There is a past and there is a future, and I do belong. 
but it's a story. It's a narrative, a grand narrative, a great story, but it's a story nonetheless. I think testimony is incredibly important today, but also incredibly useless at the same time. It's incredibly important because it's part of showing that this story is our story and that we're part of something bigger. It's incredibly useless because the problem with testimony is that people say, yeah, that's lovely, that's your story, now I'll tell you mine. It has no grip. That's a challenge. But unless we do have a testimony to tell, a story to tell of how, what difference this has made to me in the community, not just me as an individual, then I'm not going to get anywhere. And then finally, invitations to share. Anthony Gormley is a genius. He has very little time for Christianity. Some of his stuff is unhelpful. Some of his stuff is profound. And I think this is called Testing a Worldview. If you look at the picture on there, and basically there are five. You can only see four of them. There are five statues basically made from iron castings of his own body. And they're all identical. But the thing is, by placing them in different positions and places around the room, they all look different. And it's only actually when you go up close that you realize that they are absolutely identical. They're made from the same mold. What I love about it is it's called testing a worldview. And in a sense, this is precisely what we're trying to do. It's not quite what Gormley had in mind, but this is precisely what we're trying to do in our evangelism. We're trying to test people's worldview and say, think, does it fit? Does it work? Actually, is it really like that? It's like that moment in Dead Poet Society. Do you remember that film with Robin Williams in a, in a boarding school? And he gets all the boys to stand on the table. Suddenly, everything looks completely different, doesn't it? A room that, you know, if you suddenly you, you, you've lost something or trying to dust above the bookshelf, you stand on a chair and suddenly the room that you've lived in for 20 years looks completely different. This is the sort of idea. Now, what we're trying to do is say to people, look, these are my spectacles. This is my worldview. This is the way I think and understand and interpret the world. Why don't you try them on for size? Go on, try them. I dare you. I'll try yours on because I'm not, I'm not frightened. I'm, you know, I'm quite interested to know what you think. But let's swap glasses and see whether it fits. Think about this. Does this answer the big questions? Does this fit with your reality and normality of life? Does this fit? Do you have a God who loves you so much that he died on the cross for you that actually is the only way to show that truth does not have to be a power game? Or is it always a power game? Try it out. Put them on. It's an invitation to share our worldview. So it's going out. It's not being defensive. It's saying we have things to say. It's saying there are things to expose and the nonsense that there is. There's a lot of nonsense heartfelt, sincere though it might be, and just say, hang on, does it fit? And tell the old, old story.